1: Hello everybody and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today we'll be talking to Professor John Orth about his short story, Self-Defense. Professor Orth is the William Rand Kennan, Jr., Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina. Professor Orth, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Siobhan.
1: I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, where you were born and where you went to school, and a little about your usual legal scholarship.
0: Well, I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the heart of Amish country, um, but my parents were Catholics, so I went to parochial school, and then I went to college at Oberlin College, which was a bit of a culture shock, but um, very educational and useful, and from there to the Harvard Law School. But I realized in law school that I really had a great interest in history as well as law, so I stayed on and got a master's and Ph.D. in history and have spent my career mixing up law and history.
1: Okay. Uh, And could you tell us how you came to write self-defense?
0: Well, it's unusual um, because it's fiction. Um, most of what I have written has been more traditional types of legal scholarship or legal historical scholarship. Um, I wrote a book about the history of the 11th Amendment, to the United States Constitution, and a book about the history, short history of the due process of law, and a book about the North Carolina State Constitution. But this was my first venture into fiction. And I think it came about because I have a dog and I take a dog, the dog for the walk every day. And I sort of tell myself stories or as I go around. And this one seemed to me important enough for me to try to write down. And it has of course, legal dimensions to it as the title self-defense might indicate. So I came back from the walk and I made some notes and, um, and over the weekend, one time, I just began to try to put them into shape. It actually came pretty fast, partly because I started out with myself on my walk uh with my dog um, and I should say a bit about the story now, even before summarizing it. I have a dog named Milo, um, and the story is about a man with a dog named Milo. But I should say I am not the narrator, although it's written in the first person singular. Um, there was a time when the lawyers made authors of, of works of fiction, put a disclaimer in at the beginning that any resemblance of a person's alive or dead was purely coincidental to try to stave off libel suits. Um, I always liked, um, Evelyn Waugh's elegant statement of that proposition at the beginning of one of his novels, I am not I, he is not he, she is not she. So although I'll tell this story as if I am the person who narrates it, um, it really is a different person from me, although I must admit it starts out with me and my dog, um, I originally thought I would tell the story by using Milo's name and then switching it to Fido or something. (laughs) And when I was finished, I thought that was just useless. Um, So Milo is not Milo either, although I do have a dog, Milo, actually lying in my home office right now with me. Um, And uh, the story is about a man with a dog named Milo.
1: Very good. Um, So would you like to tell us a little bit about the plot of your story now before we go into analyzing it?
0: Yes, this will take a couple minutes. Um, there are a lot of details in the story, but I will try to summarize them. This man is very, a very meticulous man. Again, not necessarily myself, but based on myself, I suppose. Um, he takes a walk every day with his dog named Milo. And he obviously is very attached to the dog. A lot of the story actually involves description of the dog, Um, and the the dog is a powerful 80-pound boxer with one particular characteristic, and that is that he sometimes has the habit of rather unexpectedly leaping at um, an object, either another dog or a cat or a, a squirrel or once in a while a person. And it's really quite unexpected when he makes that spring. So the man is out walking Milo, as he does every day, and uh, both of them are clearly very observant. Uh, The dog is looking at things on the ground and for other dogs, and the man is looking at the houses. It's a comfortable middle-class or upper-middle-class neighborhood, uh, and they go uh, on their walk. And it's a little, I have to say, in telling the story that, and this was a conscious choice when I came to really put it in final form, uh, none of the characters in the stories have personal names except the dog. Mm-hmm. There is the man, the narrator. Uh, eventually, there's his uh, attempted mugger. There's the police. There's an attorney. There's an Uh, investigator for the district attorney, but none of them have names except the dog, and of course I think that's a significant fact. Um, The dog is in many ways central to this story. So the man goes out on his walk, um, and he walks through his neighborhood and he turns into a path through the woods, um, which leads to the local high school. And when he's in the woods, he sees uh, a couple of Boys, kids, um, in the distance, um, rather furtive. I I frankly imagine that they were discussing a drug deal. Um, And one of them uh, goes away, but the other actually approaches the man and his dog, Milo, uh, and has a gun and demands the man's wallet. Um, At this point, I do have to tell you something about the man's personality and whether you believe it or not it's the way he is. He actually is not afraid. He's annoyed at the at the interruption to his daily routine. Um so he delays pulling his wallet out of his pocket um because he wants to get a description of the kid in his mind so he can report this Um, and he's debating about whether to try to bargain with the kid to let him keep his credit cards. Um, At which point, quite unexpectedly, by both the boy with the gun and the man, Milo leaps at the boy, which frightens him, and he turns facing the dog and fires the pistol and kills the dog. And in the instant of this transaction the man lifts a cane that he's carrying a cane with um not a curved handle but a cross piece and he hits the boy as hard as he can and then he picks up Milo and runs back down the path thinking he's going to try to get help for the dog although he really knows the dog on some levels the dog is dead um he goes to a house, and uh, the police are called, and they come, and his focus, the man's focus is entirely on the dog. And finally, uh, he's able to tell him that the dog was shot by a boy on the path, and the police go, and actually, the boy's dead. Um, killed with a single blow to the left temple by this heavy walking stick that the man had. Um and the police then, of course, take the body to the morgue and they take the man to the hospital. Although he's not hurt at all, um, finally he's allowed to go home, and he's completely distraught about the death of the dog. Uh, and he realizes that there has to be some sort of investigation. He uh, belongs to a country club and he has a lawyer there, who a friend there who's a lawyer and the lawyer will go with him uh to the courthouse where the investigator for the DA questions him and the issue that the legal issue that seems to concern the lawyer and the investigator is self defense um, and the lawyer makes a point of the fact that the boy was hit in his left temple by a right-handed man So they were facing one another, and the body of the boy uh, was found with the gun still in his hand. The curious part here is that the man did not feel afraid. Uh, And that was one of the things which interested me about the story. Um, I actually did feel that the man had taken on a life of his own, because in a way I felt like I I knew... And he told me that he didn't have any fear. Um, but he's a smart man, actually, and he also doesn't tell lies. And so when he's questioned, questioned about whether he was afraid, his fairly consistent answer is, the kid had just shot Milo, I didn't know what he would do next, or he just shot Milo, he was capable of anything not he never says he's not he wasn't afraid. He just keeps saying that. And um in the end they uh, no prosecution is initiated. Uh, and the man goes back to a rather lonely life without the dog. Um he's very careful to have the dog's uh, ashes he's uh, preserved and he keeps them on his dresser and he has a paw print of the dog and he looks at them every day. Um He just shows no interest in the um, boy who he actually killed with that blow. Uh, It's only rather casually that he learns that the boy was never identified um, and that his body was um, used either for organ donation or for medical dissection at the medical school. And then comes the key part, in my opinion, of the story, which is the last sentence, because I'll just read that one excerpt. Um, The man reflecting on this terrible chain of events says at the very last of the story, I know in my heart of hearts that if the kid had dropped the gun after shooting Milo and turned to run away, I would have hit him. Just as hard hmm. now, friends have asked me what that means, and i and i actually i I don't mean to be uh, sort of uh, glib, but the answer is the man didn't tell me what it means it doesn't right. mean that he he was acting only out of revenge or was it just such an instinctive act uh, that it doesn't fit into our legal categories um but he he lives with the realization that, in that instant, he just reacted in that rather primitive way of taking that stick and just striking out as hard as he could, and he really has no interest in what happened to the boy. it's the dog, which is always the focus of his concern. That's the story
1: okay uh, so I think that leads us to a lot of questions um. I guess my my first thought was, do you think fiction is sometimes a better form of communicating jurisprudential thought than more traditional forms of legal writing?
0: Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, I won't say better, but it certainly is uh, a useful parallel or adjunct. Uh, Sometimes when I ask my students in class um, to discuss cases, instead of saying the stale state the facts. Uh I find myself saying, Tell me the story, that is, narrate what we know from this reported opinion about what was said and and done, and ideally a little bit of the context and, and motivations. Um and I think we have to have an imagination in order to reconstruct uh narrations which we get in in law, uh, not just in trials, but in trying to come to grips with uh, cases that are presented. Uh, I find myself really a very deeply common law lawyer. I I think case by case rather than abstractly, and I like to reason from precedent or from a text, but always testing it with hypotheticals. That's the common law way of teaching. This is the case, vary the facts. Um, and so this is sort of a, this, my story is kind of a variation on the theme of, of a man like me walking a dog like Milo, but it's not really me or Milo, and then this tragic encounter
1: occurs. In my initial reading of your story, your narrator reminded me of the narrator in Merceau in Camus the Stranger. Do you think your work was influenced in any way by works like The Stranger or Kafka's The Trial?
0: Well, Siobhan, that's a very flattering question (laughs) uh, to have come up in the same sentence with uh, Camus and and, uh, Kafka. Um, I certainly am familiar with those stories. There was no conscious connection, but I think any time we tell a story, we're influenced by all the stories we've heard. And I certainly have spent a long life of reading fiction along with law. Um, it, this is my story, but it, it is influenced, I'm sure, by all the stories that I've read or heard. Um, but there was no conscious attempt. I, if if any stylistic um, comparison occurred to me, frankly, and again, this sounds perhaps immodest, it was Hemingway. Um, short narrative sentences and and this uh, punctuated by this incident of violence. But I don't claim to be anyway.
1: <laughs> right, I can see that. Um, with Kafka and Camus, I was thinking more of the themes running through the story.
0: Yes, if, um, one of the things which bothered me, and I had to get this clear with my uh, criminal law professor colleagues, is at one point, imagined an ex-Marine being confronted by this boy with a gun and later asked if he was afraid and saying he'd been under live fire and he'd never felt fear in his life. And, and as, as my trial friends say, you don't want him to say that on the stand, but that's not the test. The test is whether a reasonable person would have felt fear. Um, for whatever reason, the man in the story did not feel fear. He, he really felt annoyance. Um, it's a nuisance to have to stop and hand over the wallet, and he'll have to recover, the, stop the credit cards and report the incident. And um, and, and in that case, he, he is somewhat a mysterious person, perhaps we all are, but that was the way he felt. Um, and I don't even know whether he understands the cleverness of his action when he says, I didn't know what he would do next. Because that would be a good enough answer um, for a self-defense argument, I think. But he didn't say, sort of ritualistically, I was afraid for my life and I had to take an action to defend myself.
1: Could you discuss some of the reasons why the narrator's lawyer confidently asserts no jury is going to convict you on these facts and no sensible prosecutor is even going to try?
0: Well, I, when I was writing the story, I made the conscious decision to make this, at least what I thought, was an easy case. That is, the man is a more than middle-aged businessman, no criminal record, no prior contact with this boy. Um, the, he's out for a peaceful walk through his uh nice neighborhood. Um and it's interrupted by this uh intrusion. The boy um, presents as a rather um, a brutal-looking young man, um, capable of violence, uh, and he initiates the violence, of course, not just by having a threat of deadly force with obviously loaded gun, but shooting it at the dog. Um, and I think the man's action is... Reflexive. Um, I, I don't think, not reflective in the sense of thinking about it, but just automatic. Um, I think it's a kind of primordial reaction. I, in the story, the man says, Milo jumped, the boy shot, and I hit the boy. And, and in a way, they all happened, not simultaneously, but in such close sequence that there's no conscious thought. The boy shoots because he's afraid. The man hits because the boy shot. Um, as a matter of fact, like this is trivial, but what I had in mind was a time when I, mean, I had a bottle of sweet wine and I, it slipped out of my hands. And I really believed that I could see it in the air and I knew what the consequences would be. There would be a mess of sticky wine and glass on the floor, which would be a terrible nuisance to clean up. But I kind of felt that the... the the story of the, of the dog jumping, the boy shooting, the man hitting, was like that. It, you can separate them out retrospectively, but they really occurred in such close sequence. There was no conscious thought here, which is, again, what was somewhat interesting to me about the self-defense rationale. And I should explain, by the way, that the, the one and only course I ever took in criminal law, was in 1969, 45 years ago. Everything I've written since then is about property and, and constitutional law. So um, this is this is really uh, criminal law 101 stuff, but I think it's right, and I've tried to check the facts and uh, the law with uh, knowledgeable people.
1: We discussed this a little bit earlier in the interview, but maybe we could go into this in more detail uh, laws attempt to simplify complex human interactions and emotions and maybe even add reflexes. How do you regulate reflexes that lead to someone's death?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, as, uh, my understanding, and again, this is a property lawyer's understanding of criminal law, is that you are authorized to use deadly force uh, in order to protect yourself from threat of mortal danger Um, and that's completely rational the problem is human beings are not completely rational and what self-defense is in a way is um, a really primitive kind of uh, situation Uh, I think of of, um, Blackstone and the social contract the notion that we enter into civil society in order to get all sorts of benefits uh and we surrender a lot of natural uh, rights but one thing we don't surrender is the primordial right to defend ourselves um and that is a remnant of law in the state of nature i guess that's that's a right that we had and we didn't surrender and all this is very rational but human beings are not uh, rational and obviously self defense and we know it from recent instances where self-defense has been claimed um, in in other situations are it opens the door to allow a jury to acquit somebody um, when they use deadly force and the rationale is that they were in fear for them their lives and therefore it's okay but i think it's a poor fit as as you've indicated uh, i mean i think it's it's the way we instinctively react and we don't consciously think oh he has a gun that looks like it's loaded yes it is loaded he's fired it he's killed my dog he might kill me next i've got to stop him he doesn't even the man doesn't even try to hit the arm with the gun he hit he just strikes out and it happens that the blunt end of that Cain connects with the boy's left temple. I checked this out with a doctor, by the way. That's actually possible. But if one blow could do that, um, the, um, the director of the morgue at Duke University confirmed that, that, that that's plausible.
1: Did you intend to bring forward class-based issues within the legal system in your work?
0: Yes. Uh, I didn't actually intend to do that, but as it went along, that was even even to me, pretty clear. Uh, the man is from the comfortable classes. Um, he sits in his house in the morning drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. He takes obviously doesn't have to get to work very early. Um, he takes his dog for a walk before returning on the usual day to shower and dress and go to the office. Um, he walks through this comfortable neighborhood. And then he has this encounter with um someone I, I don't know whether the word punk is still used that was what we called them when i was young um this uh lower class uneducated possibly stupid potentially violent person encounters him um and the man really and, and this is a fault in the man i don't i hope it's not me um he doesn't treat the boy as nearly as important as the dog the dog is the center of his emotional attachment here. And um, I think, I mean, I must admit, I reread the story today before we talked and, and it, it's really kind of cold, cruel. I mean, it, the, the man does not appreciate. And, and even the people he deals with do not appreciate the, the death of the human being. And for the man, the catastrophic event is the death of the dog uh and it was certainly and the fact that this this rather uh chilling thought that the boy no name, no identification ends up you know on some marble slab in the in the uh dissection room in the hospital or medical school, just being a is a, a, a complete object all the way through and And yet the dog is a person, ironically enough, at least to the man, at least to the narrator.
1: Yes. uh, And the dog is the only character who has a name in your story. So that underscores it even more.
0: Yes. And when I started telling the story, I didn't intend to do that. And it only occurred to me when the man went back with the dead dog to his house and and met his wife. And at first I was struggling to give his wife a name. And then I thought, no one else in the story has a name. Um... And the, uh, and, and it really brings out the centrality of the man's relation with the dog. Um, that, that, that's, uh, the dog is not only a character, he's almost the character. The man is, of course, the central figure. He's the one that kills the boy. But the dog and the death of the dog is, I think, in many ways, the emotional heart of the story. And then the man tries to cope with that and with his part in the death of the boy.
1: This leads me pretty smoothly to my next question, which is how your story addresses society and the laws regard for animal lives.
0: Well, clearly I I was trying to think about self-defense, a legal concept, um, but I also am still wrestling with the the laws handling of uh, animals, particularly domestic animals. Uh, And as a property law teacher, the the standard line is that uh, dogs or other household pets are property. Uh, And and indeed, one of the self-defense problems in this case is if the man was using deadly force to protect his property, it's theoretically not authorized. And if the dog is only his property... The man treats the dog as a companion, as a person, uh, as part of his household, so to speak. And um, I don't think we know what to do with the the animal-human relationship, which which I think is profound. Uh, Not for everybody, but for those animal lovers among us. Someone asked me why I always wanted to have a dog in the house, and I said, and I didn't even think much about this. I just sort of came off the top of my head. I said. I like to live in a house with a non-human presence as well as other people. It adds something, I think, to the, uh, to my experience as a person. And I think there are a lot of people that feel that way. And I can tell you as a trust lawyer, there's a lot of ink spilled over trying to create trust for dogs and cats and figure out how to deal with that. Um, since the animal cannot, in our legal system, take title to any property and so we're trying to um, integrate that but I don't know I have no solution to this problem to offer except to point out that people do feel an attachment and I, I tried out various stories for myself for instance um, the boy walks up and just doesn't ask for the wall just shoots the dog uh, I mean the man has no right to hit him legally speaking but I'd rather think this man would have and the law would probably have tried to find some way to keep from holding him responsible. Um, the other thing which bothered me is I don't know, and I, this is facetious cause I, but I'll say it, I asked the man, what would you have done if the boy had not only thrown the gun down and turned, but had actually run away. Would you have run after him? Um, and I didn't get a very clear answer. I, I think the man felt, no, I would have tended to the dog. But if he really was motivated only by passion for revenge for the killing of his companion animal, then he might have. And that, of course, is not authorized. He can't tackle the kid and beat his brains out because he killed his dog. That's that's scary. Uh, that was part of the story,
1: right? Okay. Well, I think I may have focused on that part of your story, especially because I was taking animal law this semester. I read it, so I was thinking through a lot of the the cases that we'd read in that class, while through the through the window mm-hmm. of your story. So it was it was interesting. Um,
0: yes, my uh, criminal law colleagues uh, use it uh, in the in their criminal law classes when they get to. Um, to the self-defense, uh, section.
1: Yeah. No, I like what you said about having stories be a supplement to more traditional legal scholarship because it just, it, it helps to, it just, you can't understand basic law unless you understand the human emotions behind it. Okay. Um, are there any other parts of our legal system, or legal culture, um, that you'd like to talk about that are highlighted through your work?
0: Yes. There is one other thing which I think is in the story. Um, To the extent this is a legal story, uh, it's about self-defense. It's about, I won't say animal rights, but human-animal bond and the legal consequences of that. Um, But there's something else I think, about the story, and that is the kind of mystery which lies at the heart of human beings. Um, this story actually tells us a lot more about the central character than you would have gotten in a trial, if there had been a trial, uh, because he he's not put on trial. But assuming he had been and stuck to his story, um, which is a true story, Um, He should, I think, have been acquitted. Um, I know if I was on the jury, I would have voted to acquit him. And I know that prosecutors I talked to about the story felt that it probably wasn't worth pursuing as narrated. But we actually know more about the man because we get there's a certain coldness about his character um, towards people. Um, and, a, and I guess a, a strong bond with the animal. But then that line at the end, which in some ways was what started me writing the story, that feeling that the man would have said that, in my heart of hearts, I know that if the kid had dropped the gun after shooting Milo and turned to run away, I would have hit him just as hard. What interests me about that is, it's a confession about his secret thoughts, but even that doesn't get us where we really would like to go. Is he confessing that he was motivated only by revenge and therefore had no element of self-defense at all? Um, I don't, as I said, he didn't tell me the answer to that question, but I think it's part of the problem with we get, when we get testimony from people, we, we don't really know why they do the things they do or why they say that. Um, and we just have to try to do, do the best we can. This man actually opens his heart to us, but it still doesn't satisfy me, at least. Uh, and I don't think it satisfies him. I, I, I don't think he, I think he realizes that there was no time for rational thought and that and and maybe this is just the caveman in all of us. I mean, just that instinctive violence is everyone capable of violence with sufficient provocation. Um, he didn't really strike out to kill the kid. It just happens that he did. It's also clear that he doesn't really, he doesn't feel like a killer. He keeps saying that I don't feel like I killed anybody, uh, even though as a matter of fact, he did. Um, but the real reality of the dog's death, of course, as I've said, is central. Can I say something else about writing yes, the please. story? Writing any story. Um, I first of all, I had the experience that I've heard creative writers uh, say before, and that is, I created this character, but it's like the Golem or Frankenstein; it got out of my control. And I suddenly realized that when the man is talking to his lawyer, uh, and the lawyer floats the phrase self defense, which is clearly the legal angle. And at that point, I suddenly, as I was writing the dialogue, I, I wrote down what the man said without my consciously thinking it out. And what the man said after the lawyer mentions self defense is. Milo wouldn't have hurt anybody in other words the man interprets that as the kid was justified to shoot Milo because the kid feared that Milo was going to hurt him that's what he thought the man the lawyer was talking about whereas of course the lawyer thinking to human terms is trying to establish that the man was in fear of deadly force from the boy and that was kind of a shock to me that this character I had created was not a puppet, but had taken on a life of his own. And that's, that was, as I got sort of writing the character, I realized that's what he would say. He'd still, he still is not thinking about danger to himself. It was the violence on the animal and it was unjustified violence on the animal, which is what probably outrages him and triggers his violent response And one other thing, if I could add, um, a a very perceptive friend of mine read this story and saw something in it, which I was there, but at least I didn't consciously put it there. The cane, which is the murder weapon, actually, um, it it says at the beginning of the story that the cane, a blackthorn cane, a heavy blackthorn cane, which is why it's capable of inflicting that blow, um... The cane had been, as the narrator says, a gift he had given, the narrator had given to his father, but had re- recovered after his father died. And this reader said to me, you know, the cane is a death cane. Mm. The cane comes back to him after the death of his father, and it's the, it's the item that he used inadvertently, unintentionally, to kill the boy. And I thought, I mean, first thing I thought, wow, you know, I didn't intend that. I don't know whether it was there subconsciously um, or whether just telling the story, I just put that in to make it, uh, give it verisimilitude or not. But it's true. The word death appears in the first paragraph or two about you know, something different. But it ends, of course, that the cane is the murder weapon, so to speak it's the it's the cane of death uh, and I didn't see that, and I didn't plant it there um, but it was there and that so these things have a life of their own, not just the characters, but even so when you write them again, whether I was just doing something out of my deep subconscious, I'll leave to the psychoanalysts. i don't know, but that was an interesting fact, and there may be others like that that. I have not perceived.
1: That's interesting. Art takes on a life of its own. Um, so to conclude, uh, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
0: Well, I don't think I have a career in fiction, um, but I um, I do continue to play around with fiction. I, I have actually written a story, uh, but it doesn't have any legal aspect to it, and uh, I haven't decided what to do with it. Um, the on my in the day job i um, uh, am wrestling with a very challenging assignment. Um, there's a planned a uh, Cambridge Companion to the United States Constitution, and i 've been asked to try to write a chapter about the rule of law and this has led me into a lot of um, hard thinking about law the, the autonomy of the law. Uh, the universality of the law, the content of the phrase "rule of law," um, and I must admit that I'm in the midst of of wrestling with that. I've agreed to give a talk in uh, Australia in December uh, on this, and I I agreed to do it deliberately because outside of the United States, that phrase, the rule of law, has a kind of uh, Pregnant significance, which it doesn't have here, since we tend to look at the Constitution and due process and and uh, what we've built up in America as the rule of law. So uh, I'm trying to wrestle with um, those concepts, and in in a very remote way, I think it's enriched by the storytelling, because one of the tensions in the rule of law is how close do we have to stick to the rules? the black letter uh and to what extent does other concerns like mercy and justice and uh and also this a deeper understanding of the human personality character uh fit in with our understanding i mean and, and um, so that's a very tenuous connection but um it's all part of this general inquiry about the relationship between between the what we call a disembodied force of law, government of laws and not of men, even though people have to be the uh actors in administering this system. So that's what's on my mind right now. Uh, and I'm taking a break from that to go back to... I, well, I can't say exactly enjoy this fiction <laughs> because... I, I still, I did when I read it over this afternoon. I actually had tears in my eyes over the death of yeah. the dog, um, and I also had had this chilling feeling about the way some people in our society are just objects uh, and don't get any consideration—not as much consideration as a as a well pampered dog does. And that, frankly, that's scary and, and unsettling.
1: Yeah, well, it's an extremely emotionally powerful piece, so uh, anyone listening to this should read the actual work because you can get a lot more of that emotional build-up reading uh, your very precise detail. Um, and it, it really is a, a powerful work. Um, so, and your Rule of Law project is extremely fascinating, um, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you, Siobhan, It's it's... Um... <sighs> really is a compliment to take this uh, so seriously, this uh, piece of, of fiction, although I did feel strongly about it, and I'm, I really have enjoyed talking with you about it. Uh, and, uh, and again, I've even learned more about it myself as I prepared for talking with you about it. So thank you for that.